0: There's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even going to be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag-nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke
1: Morning.
2: Labor Day show on Labor and Love Radio.
1: Nobody knows the dreams she dares to dream, the plans she has made, or the time she This is...
2: This is uh, Black Eyed Peas.
0: I wanna throw bows, give me elbow room Ooh, When I'm out my cocoon, I'm ready to consume Let's hit the salute, cause It's a holiday, party as I celebrate hey. And that's the way we do it We get a little loopy off the ignorant fluid And act a little stupid just in case you didn't do it That's just how we do it, don't ask why we do it That's just the way it be Loving double D's up at the AD When I'm in Hollywood VIP I don't understand, that's T.O.P. We don't take forever and get down together we don't stop we up on a high plate like that, you We on a festive date. Make it go eight, and raise your heart rate. We gon' stay out late. Party till the morning and wake, wake up late. We do it till the daybreak. Go on and on and then on and on and. Dance to my mind. I can holler acapella's death to your blind. Your mind, baby. Take you to the local behind, baby. Take a sip of Mo just with time. Nine, baby. We don't stop, girl. We don't quit. Nope. We don't quit. Nope. We don't quit. We don't take forever and get down together. We don't stop. Push it, move your bate and push it, get not and push it, we gon' bat and push it, we gon' pat and push it, move your bate, and push it, get not and push it. It's a holiday, celebrate. It's time to get wasted and scope the whole place for girls with cute faces. Cause I see some fly mama, so pack your pajamas, but don't bring the drama. But you could bring your melody I'll plug in my mic and sing my harmony For how many times we gonna hit it How many times we gonna split it How many times you gonna get it it. Or else you are gonna When I come sober You gonna have to order Cause I'm the alligator champ Driving a train, driving a train Or you could call your friend and I'll switch my lane And get buddy buddy with your friend Mary Jane She really blows my brain Brain. She really blows my brain. brain
2: Good morning, mutineers. This is the Labor and Love Show coming to you from Mutiny Radio. And this is our special Labor Day show. As Black Eyed Peas just told us, it's a holiday. Celebrate, it's a holiday. Black eyed peas. Okay, so we've got a show plan, good show plan for you today. We're going to play parts of Fred Glass's history of the California labor movement, Golden Lands, Working Hands. What happened today in labor history? 1991, 3,500 hundred buses rolled into Washington, DC. To do what? We've got guest commentators, Francesca, Francesca Ramsey and Francesca Fiorentini talking about can we survive capitalism? Why is voter ID, why are voter ID laws inherently racist? What have unions done for us anyway? Huh? Do we know? Well, we're going to find out today. We've also got a section by Jack London, where Jack London from a novel describes a work day. <clears throat> a work week, a work month. Washing and pressing uh, white shirts at the Bohemian Grove. Then we've got our labor beat. 20,000 workers are on strike at at and An Iranian journalist and labor activist, subject to 10 years, sentenced to 10 years and 148 lashes. The problem with Congress is pretty obvious. Commentary from Barbara Ehrenreich regarding low-page workers. What trickle-down? Huh? Worker pays up 12%. How much does CEO pay up? And a woman that we all revere and love, Dolores Huerta, still at it, getting arrested. The NLRB rules in favor of fired workers. What? What's going on? Talk a little about Jay-Z. Anyway, let's... First, we started out with, uh, like I said, Black Eyed Peas. Labor Day, it's a holiday, and I want to look up those lyrics, see what they have to say about it. Before that, we had the classic labor song by Pete Seeger. Which Side Are You On? Written by the redoubtable Florence Reese. As her living room was being... Her house was being torn apart by company scabs, company security people looking for her husband, Florence Reese. And the one before that was by Cher Bono. Yes, that Cher. Talking about working girl. Working girl, working in a man's world. Something else I want to talk about today is something that we don't often talk about. Um, a lot of political and uh, economic commentary now is based solely on value, on money, on is it good or not good for workers monetarily. We're going to take a look about at alienation. This is... Uh, a concept that uh, Karl Marx wrote about, but what is how, how does living under capitalism alienate us one from the other? One commentator says it makes us all into homeless people. Makes us all feel like we're homeless. okay we got labor cards we've got uh, let's start out with a little labor history
3: august 31st why we march on this day in labor history the year was 1991 3,500 buses rolled into Washington, D.C. They were loaded with protesters there to participate in Solidarity Day. The AFL-CIO organized the event to coincide with the Labor Day weekend. They issued a statement, Why We March, outlining labor's demands. The purpose of the day was to bring attention to the concerns of the nation's working people, especially over health care. Other reasons for the march included a call for more public works programs. Another major demand was the end to permanent replacement of striking workers by scabs. Bernie Dinkin, Secretary Treasurer of the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union in Philadelphia explained, one of the main purposes for us going down is to let our friends know, our friends in the Democratic Party who are sitting on their laurels, that if they do not support anti-scab legislation, we will vote against them, no matter what they've done in the past. The most important aim of the event was to show workers strength and solidarity. A similar showing of solidarity had taken place in the nation's capital 10 years before. After President Reagan fired striking air traffic controllers, a September 1981 rally had drawn more than a quarter of a million people. The 1991 action brought out similar numbers. Despite the 95 degree weather, tens of thousands converged on the nation's capital. They came from across the nation and 30 countries. 100 buses and a specially chartered train made the trip from Philadelphia Noticeable among the crowd were members of the United Steelworkers Union with their gold and blue shirts. 180 different labor, religious, and civil rights groups stood up on that day for the rights of working people. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1996. That was the day the workers at the Lusty Lady Strip Club in San Francisco made their final push to make their case for the right to join a union. They made history by winning the union vote 57-15. to SEIU Local 790 led the historic campaign. What started the union drive was the windows at the private booths where the ladies performed. The windows had one-way glass. That meant patrons could look in, but performers could not see out. They worried that the men could videotape them or take photographs without their permission. When management refused to change the windows, the women started talking union. Soon, other workplace issues arose as the women furthered their union discussion. One woman recalled, We started to discuss other problems at work, like being forced to come in when you were sick. She went on, our first thought was to organize a petition, but we were really concerned about individual dancers being scapegoated and fired because that happened on a regular basis. Another participant in the union drew on her personal background as a reason for getting involved. She noted, I had been raised to support union efforts and the workers' cause. I hadn't ever worked at a place where there was any sort of struggle to be a part of. The women ran a successful campaign to unionize. Despite winning the vote, management dragged its feet in negotiating their first contract. The women went on strike and management locked them out few men dared to cross the picket line to enter the club and within a few days management capitulated and returned to the bargaining table where the women signed their first contract labor history in two brought to you by the illinois labor history society and the rick smith show for more information go to laborhistoryin2.com like us on facebook and follow us on the twitters at labor history in two I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1921. That was the day that one of the most pitched battles in U.S. labor history, the Battle of Blair Mountain, began in West Virginia. Coal fueled the engines of industry, keeping the trains moving and the steel mills humming. Labor organizing in the coal fields faced violent repression. The conflict turned bloody at Matawan friend of labor, local lawman Sid Hatfield, had won a gun battle against armed members of the notorious Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Then, other Baldwin Feltz agents, brought to West Virginia by the mine owners, gunned down Hatfield in cold blood. The miners' anger boiled over. 600 miners gathered under the United Mine Workers of America District 17 banner. The armed miners were determined to march into the state's southern coal fields. Their aim was to promote the Union effort and sweep away the gunmen hired by the mining companies. As they marched, more and more miners joined them. As many as 10,000 miners converged on Blair Mountain. The high ground stood between the unionized northern part of the state and the less organized southern mines. At Blair Mountain, they met Logan County Sheriff Don Chafin, who had amassed an army of 3,000 armed men to repel the miners. Chafin's men had dug trenches, blocked roads, and marshaled machine guns to stop the Union men. In the battle that ensued, one million rounds were fired. The mine owners hired private planes to drop shrapnel bombs on the miners. The United States Army finally arrived. The miners, many of them World War I veterans, surrendered. Although the owners had won, what occurred at Blair Mountain drew national attention to the unsafe working conditions and the brutality of the coal barons in the coal fields. Labor History in 2 brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith show
2: labor history there in two minutes and it seems like uh, the end of August is a as the rest of the whole calendar is labor history time uh, we had a varied uh, calendar there of uh, labor history exhibits from strippers at the lusty lady to pitched battles at Blair Mountain to the 1991 demo that drew quarter of a million people to Washington, D.C. Black-Eyed Peas, I wanted to, let's see, Black-Eyed Peas, I, I wanted to, um, Check out the band, Black Eyed Peas, and talk a little about them. Maybe look at the lyrics. Okay, Black Eyed Peas is an American musical group, which we already know. Um, Originally an alternative hip-hop group, they subsequently changed their music sound to pop and dance pop music. Although the group was founded in LA in 1995, it was not until the release of their third album, *Elefunk*, in 2003, that they achieved high record sales. Since that time, the group has sold an estimated 75 million records, making them one of the world's best-selling groups of all time. Black Eyed Peas. And let's see if we can get a look at. uh, Lyrics. Um, The Battle of Blair Mountain, one million rounds of ammunition were shot in that battle uh the closest thing in the 20th century that um an armed pitch battle now those those miners were outgunned by the uh, federal government the government had brought in troops um, they were they were um ...advised by Mother Jones not to fight against federal troops. And like the report said, it, it did bring a, um, attention to the plight of miners. And out of that, in 1931, came Florence Reese and Which Side Are You On? Constant struggle in the coal mines. Even to this day, uh, as coal miners whose jobs are disappearing as we give up on coal... Concerned with their futures, what's going to happen to them? What happens to a 55 year old coal miner whose job is over? I mean, how's he going to get a job? Where's he going to get a job? And that's all he's known all his life. Mr. Trump made a big show about saving coal, but it's just not in the cards. It's dirty, it pollutes, it kills those who mine it. And even though miners, you know, try to cling to that as something they can depend on, it's because they're not sure of what's coming next. Black-eyed peas, Labor Day. When I step in the room, I bring the heat like the month of June. Crank the vibe, you make the bass go boom. While out some wild baboon, we go bananas to the tune. And partying in Hollywood, VIP don't understand this TOD. We party forever, we get down together. We don't stop and we don't quit. Let's get it going because you know we're going to celebrate. It's a holiday. I don't work today or the next three days, so let's celebrate. It's a holiday. I don't work today. party till the morning and wake up late we do it to the daybreak dance to my rhyme we don't stop okay black eyed peas celebrating labor day with their song it's a holiday What, by the way, besides besides Labor Day, the Labor Day holiday, what have unions done for us? Thank a union. Let's figure it out. Weekends, paid vacation, FMLA. Family medical leave, paid sick leave, child labor laws, social security, minimum wage, eight hour day, overtime pay, health and safety, OSHA, health care, dental, vision, collective bargaining, breaks, wrongful termination laws age discrimination laws, raises, sexual harassment laws, American Disabilities Act, Holiday Pay, Military Leave Equal Pay Act, Civil Rights, Workers' Comp, thank a union. Now, there are always those people. We saw last week how uh, organizing efforts in uh, Dayton, Ohio, movie that we're going to talk about a little later called American Factory. Here are the union here are the workers. Workers united against workers uniting. 10 reasons we're against unions. I prefer having no power. I love bosses. Unions just want to line their own pockets, unlike bosses who have only our interests at heart. Well, uh, other than weekends, lunch breaks, overtime pay, parental leave, uh, pension plans, higher wages and sick leave, what good have unions ever done for us? There's a woman saying, I deserve less pay than men. And here's a guy with a hook instead of a hand. I wouldn't want the company wasting money making my job safer. Speaking objectively, all unions are evil. I want the right to work along with the right to be arbitrarily fired, okay? Who cares if unions reduce the pay gap between non-white and white workers? It's wrong that unions spend money influencing Congress. Only businesses should get to do that. One day, I'll get rich and I'll be the boss. Once that happens, I don't want some union getting in my way. I'm also going to be boss. Who wants more power at work? These are your voices, your anti-union voices, and that's what they amount to. What have unions done for us? All those things. So let's talk a little bit about the Amazon jungle, and again, this is uh, we're gonna get into this with uh, with um, Francesca Fiorentini. Can we afford? Can we survive unions? Yes. Can we survive capitalism? <laughs> Maybe not. Here we go, Francesca Fiorentini.
4: I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode, we're looking at the failures of profit-driven climate change solutions, and why the cooking of our planet is becoming a recipe for socialism. (laughs) Once again, we've broken global temperature records with July being the hottest month recorded since the invention of recording temperatures. Which, if you're a right-winger, sounds like very biased framing. The libs never want to talk about the Hadean age when the earth was molten lava. Typical. It's so hot that Greenland is losing ice that wasn't supposed to melt until 2070. The Arctic is on fire, and I'm pretending I belong at random pool parties. Oh, who who am I friends with? Oh, Derek. Or Michael. Matt. You're telling me there's no Matt here? So now seems like as good a time as every other moment prior till now to talk about climate change. The planet has already warmed by one degree Celsius since the time we started burning all these fossil fuels. And we're on track to warm by four degrees, possibly as soon as 2060. According to the most recent UN study, even two degrees of warming would mean millions more refugees, double the loss of food harvest, 10 centimeters of sea level rise, and an obliteration of all coral reefs. Which means we've got 12 years to have a shot at keeping the temperature to a Still bad, but manageably terrifying 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. So yeah, banning plastic straws ain't gonna cut it. Even though it's fun to watch so-called liberal paper straws trigger our president into doing this. His campaign started selling Trump-themed plastic straws so you could buy a pack of 10 for $15. $15 for 10 straws? That's $1.50 per straw. If that's how much Trump thinks straws cost, how much is his dealer charging him for Adderall? Yeah, that'll be uh, $700,000. Part of the reason we're at such a breaking point is thanks to years of shallow solutions, solutions often devised by the same corporate interests that got us into this mess in the first place. One of those solutions is carbon cap-and-trade, which tries to get polluters to pollute less by limiting the amount of carbon any corporation can emit, but also by allowing them to purchase carbon limits from other companies who haven't used theirs up. Cap-and-trade has already been implemented in countries around the world and in a number of U.S. states, but many say that it doesn't actually stop emissions. It just spreads them around and creates a speculative market for carbon. Like, imagine if you could buy and sell Weight Watchers points to keep eating pizza. Someone would be making money, but no one's losing weight. Plus, we'd see the rise of a frightening thin people mafia who control the whole racket just listen to one researcher who says cap and trade pushes us in the opposite direction of where we need to be going
5: we need to overcome our addiction to fossil fuels and the problem with cap and trade is it is that it stands in the way of doing that in in many ways it's 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 a way of providing pollution rights to some of the worst polluters so that they can delay the kind of structural change that's necessary
4: he's right that's not how you fight an addiction if you want to get your brother off heroin you don't split up his stash between your mom and dad like let's all- I'll just do a little bit of heroin to keep Brad from doing a lot of bit of heroin. At this point, cap and trade isn't even a relevant solution anymore because it's too slow to be viable. California, the second largest carbon polluter in the nation, but first in my heart, reduced its emissions by almost 9% in three years, which is not bad. But do the math, it's not nearly enough if we've got only 12 years to get to zero, Silicon Valley is still going to be underwater, and then we'll have to deal with a whole bunch of flotation device startups, and that just seems exhausting. So, cap-and-trade won't get us there. What about innovation? We'll just ask the science nerds to come up with something. I mean, other than the ones telling us to stop burning fossil fuels. Innovation has been the aim of private companies also looking to get rich off the climate crisis. Floating ideas like geoengineering, which includes one plan to spray reflective aerosols into the stratosphere to block the sun. Yeah, aerosol. If only our climate-change-denying president knew that this whole time, the answer has been hairspray. Turns out, though, that that scheme, like many others, has too many unforeseen side effects to be feasible. Things like stopping rain and totally vindicating chemtrail conspiracies. Even if wacky inventions or cap-and-trade worked, they're still too slow. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues to subsidize the fossil fuel industry to the tune of $649 billion a year. So not only are they making the planet uninhabitable, they're getting a goddamn discount. These faux solutions have come and gone, all while climate change has been getting worse, which means now we need to do far more in way less time.
6: The longer we wait, the more that the response challenges our economic system, because we need to cut so much and so deeply.
4: What does she mean that the response will challenge our economic system? Well, that's because our economic system is currently based on using up all of Earth's natural resources with no regard for the actual Earth all to turn a profit and create economic growth, or GDP. You remember GDP from our video on the economy, which you should totally watch. And while you're at it, subscribe. GDP is that phantom number that many agree is useless, but is actually incredibly harmful when it comes to climate change.
7: Since when was GDP a sensible measure of human welfare? And yet everything that governments want to do is to try to boost GDP. Now, people like the OECD or the World Bank who say, oh, we're not asking for a lot of growth, just 3% a year. That means doubling in 24 years. Yeah, we're bursting through all the environmental boundaries and screwing the planet already. You want to double it? We have to overthrow this system, which is eating the planet with perpetual growth.
4: I love how blown this host's mind is. Rarely do you see the precise moment that someone gets woke. You mean it's not about plastic straws? Slowing down economic growth has actually been the only thing that has drastically stopped greenhouse gas emissions.
8: The only thing in the last 40 years that has measurably reduced global greenhouse gas emissions is reductions in economic growth. When the Eastern Bloc collapsed in the early 90s, that led to global emissions reductions.
4: He's right. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, greenhouse gas emissions dropped by about 40%. Apparently, people not eating meat because of the high prices had a lot to do with it. It was nothing but veggie borscht for them. And to think, now it's way less painful to avoid eating meat with things like the impossible Whopper, which I will try as soon as I stop being afraid of it. How does it bleed? The evidence is there that unless we're willing to rethink capitalism, we might have to rethink life itself. Because we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. We've been obsessed with doing more to stop climate change, making even more money, when the answer is actually keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Doing less like Disney live action reboots. Do less. Less extraction of oil, less production, fewer or no yachts for the DeVos family. Renewable energy, solar and wind can replace coal, gas and oil, but we still can't keep endlessly producing and consuming. Even a UN official back in 2015 said as much, and that got the attention of Fox News' Greg Gutfeld, who quoted her on his show. This is probably the most difficult task (laughs) to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. And predictably, that was met with red-baiting. Well, she's wrong. See Mao and the 50 million dead, or Stalin. Hell, look at Venezuela right now. It's a crap show without toilet paper. Seriously, they don't have toilet
0: paper in Venezuela.
4: Oh, where we're going, Greg, you won't need toilet paper because the whole world will be one giant bidet. You can wash your face, ass, wherever you want. Beyond the red-baiting, there's an honest question. If we slow down production, will there be jobs? Enter the Green New Deal, a plan introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that other guy. The Green New Deal is a blueprint for a 10-year mobilization to get to net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by taking major steps like moving to renewable energy and building public transportation, all with the labor of millions of newly created jobs.
9: This is a call to reorganize and to make sure that we
4: are fighting for a
9: just economy, for a just society, a just environment, and a just future for the United States of America and the world. Mm,
4: Sorry, having an ASMR moment. And whenever there's a plan for massive public investment and putting people over profit, it scares the 1% and their mouthpieces a whole lot.
6: They went looking for an issue that would justify a hostile takeover of the economy. Climate change seems scary, so they went with that.
4: Oh my God. Tucker Carlson would rather human civilization die than live in a more equal country. Also, note what's going on just to his right. Yeah, those are updates on an abnormally large hurricane off the Gulf Coast. I love how there's an infiltrator at Fox fighting the machine from the inside, and it's the weather. It will be hard to rein in emissions and capitalism for that matter, but it is possible. We must try with your help
9: with your insistence with your organizing with your demands with your voting with your mobilizing a broader electorate than we have ever seen before in american
4: history we do not have to go down that path it's too late to stop some climate chaos we're living it But are we going to die from the things we love, no matter how humiliating? Will we be the David Carradine of civilizations? Or are we going to get real about real solutions?
7: There's time, but we can't do it by just pissing around at the margins of the problem. We've got to go straight to the heart of capitalism and overthrow it.
4: In other words, wouldn't we rather be red than dead? Thanks so much for watching Newsbroke. Follow me at Franny Fio and follow AJ Plus and Newsbroke on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all the things. Do you guys think that the U.S. has what it takes to transform to a new...
2: Okay, Francesca Fiorentini there with her analysis of the problems that climate change, that capitalism has caused, actually... Capitalism is based on the endless exploitation of the earth, and the earth is not endless. The resources are not endless. It's not uh, It's not immortal. The earth is not immortal in the sense that we're talking about, in the sense that it can support what we call civilization. And there's an apparent contradiction between labor, people who need to go to work every day and support their families, and climate change solutions where new jobs have to be found, jobs that don't rip off the earth, jobs that on the contrary undo the harmful things that capitalism has done and build a new world based not on greed but survival. One labor leader who was well aware of that was a man named Chico Mendes. Labor card number one, and we're going to talk a little about Chico Mendes today. Chico Mendes was a tapper, a worker who lived and harvested rubber trees in the Brazilian rainforest. Now, the rainforest is in the news because the president of Brazil um is continuing the process even expediting the process of burning down the rainforest the amazon rainforest to open up land the way the united states uh, government opened up land and one thing they had to do was kill all the natives which they did and now that's what's happening in brazil native tribes are being exploited are being kicked off their land their ancestral lands and those lands are being burned down to make cattle ranches sugar cane plantations in other words the so-called turner thesis the u.s uh, historian said that the west was sort of the uh, safety valve for civilization when people couldn't make it in the east in the big cities of the east there was this west that was out there land was uh easy to get you could start your own spread you could uh as long as the west had to be destroyed and replanted you know with miles of crops and things well, that's happening in Brazil. Chico Mendes became leader of the Tappers Union in 1980. His union fought for workplace rights and the preservation of the rainforest ecology against rich ranching interests. Chico Mendes understood that ecology was part of his work because if the uh, rubber trees were all burned down, he and his, his union people and other tappers would have no work. Mendes' work brought worldwide attention to the destruction of the Amazon jungle. The union organized nonviolent actions to resist the takeover of trapper communities and block bulldozers and chainsaw crews. Beautiful children's book called Don't Cut Down That Tree. There's a, guy who's being paid to chop down trees in the Amazon. And one day he takes a little nap, and all the animals and species that live on that tree and around that tree come and speak to him. Chico Mendez's son, almost of course, Chico Mendez, almost of course, was murdered in 1988. Of the film about Mendes' life and work with Raul Julia, entitled "The Burning Season," which was released in nineteen ninety four see, we've got a little feature here about Chico Mendes and how important his work was, and how important it was that he found a nexus between. The labor movement, the blue and the green, the ecological movement. Chico Mendez, Peaceful voice.
10: The Amazon rainforest is one of the most important regions in the world, with more species of plants and animals than any other area on the planet. The Amazon basin contains 1.4 billion acres of dense rainforest and has an estimated 390 billion individual trees. This unique ecosystem is important for its rich biodiversity and its abundance of natural resources. However, because of its resources, the Amazon rainforest has been targeted for exploitation for more than 500 years. In recent decades, many commercial entities have set up operations in the Amazon, including cattle ranchers and logging companies. As a result, there has been massive deforestation, which has severely damaged the overall ecosystem and all those who depend on it. One of the groups hurt most by deforestation has been the indigenous people who live there. At one point, the Amazon was home to nearly six million tribal people. By the early 1900s, there were fewer than 250,000 natives still living there. Pushed from their homeland and deprived of their resources, thousands of natives found themselves living in poverty with few leaders to represent them or to protect the forest that they relied upon to survive. One man who had the courage to stand up for the indigenous people of the Amazon was Brazilian activist Chico Mendes. Mendez was both a labor leader and an environmentalist. As a labor leader, he worked tirelessly to win basic human rights for the people of the Amazon. And as an environmentalist, he fought to preserve the rainforests of the region. Mendez understood that the Amazon was not just important for the survival of local communities, but also for the health of the entire planet. His activism caught the attention of the world and helped to create a movement to protect the Amazon rainforests and the indigenous people living there. Although his life ended tragically, Mendez accomplished a great deal in a short time, and his legacy continues to inspire people to this day. This is his story. Francisco Chico Mendez was born on December 15, 1944 on a Brazilian rubber plantation outside of the town of Japuri. His family was poor, but very close. When Mendez was eight or nine years old, he started working with his father, tapping rubber trees for their sap, which was later turned into latex. By the time he was eleven, he was working full-time. As Mendez grew up, he increasingly became aware of how his family and the local community were being exploited. Workers put in long hours for minimal pay, earning barely enough to survive. At the same time, they were being overcharged for goods at company stores, a practice that kept them in constant debt. To make matters worse, many workers developed debilitating lung diseases because the process of making latex produced such dangerous toxic fumes. There were no protections for the workers and no health benefits for those who became sick. Watching so many people struggling, Chico Mendes became increasingly determined to take action. We are unable to remain silent in the face of so much injustice, he said. Mendes began his crusade in a very simple way. He sent letters to the Brazilian government. Mendez sent the letters with great optimism, naively believing that government officials would quickly take action. However, for the most part, his letters were ignored and nothing was done. As a result, Mendez decided to raise the stakes and pursue a more assertive process of collective action. In the early 1970s, Mendez organized the plantation workers into an official labor union. As a unified force, the workers had much more power. They set clear goals and pressured landowners to meet their demands. To demonstrate their power, workers began blocking the roadways into the plantations, refusing to move until action was taken, a form of nonviolent civil disobedience that proved to be very effective. In 1975, Chico Mendez and the workers finally had some success. Landowners officially recognized the Rubber Tappers Union and began to make concessions. The union pushed for wage increases, improved conditions, and better protections for the rainforest that was their home. Progress was slow, but steady. However, just as Mendez and his allies began making gains, larger economic forces turned the entire rubber-making industry on its head. As new manufacturing methods advanced, artificial rubber was replacing naturally produced latex. This caused the traditional rubber-tapping industry to completely collapse in just a matter of years. Responding to these sudden changes, plantation owners began selling their land to cattle ranchers, hoping to offset their losses. The ranchers moved in quickly and started cutting down trees to make way for grazing cattle. Deforestation advanced on a scale never seen before. Once again, Mendez and his people found their homes and their way of life threatened by powerful interests, and once again, they moved into action. Organized by Mendez, local communities began setting up blockades to prevent loggers from entering key areas. Other groups took their resistance to a whole new level, sabotaging the equipment used to cut down trees. However, with millions of dollars at stake, cattle ranchers soon retaliated. They hired police to strong-arm Mendez and his followers. Many activists were arrested and taken into custody. Some were even beaten and tortured. Still, in spite of these harsh tactics, Mendez and his supporters succeeded in saving over three million hectares from destruction. Progress came at a cost, but the workers were willing to bear it. In 1985, Mendez began pursuing a new strategy. Working with his colleague Maria Allegretti, Mendez spent five months organizing a national meeting of rubber tappers from throughout the Amazon. Together, they launched a new approach, focusing more on the importance of preserving the rainforest and its resources. With this new strategy, they were hoping to win more international support from environmental groups. And the strategy worked. By March of 1987, the Environmental Defense Fund and the National Wildlife Federation flew Mendez to Washington, D.C. to convince the Inter-American Development Bank and the U.S. Congress to support the creation and protection of extractive reserves. With growing support, Mendez continued to improve working and living conditions for his people while increasing protection for the rainforests. As Mendez made important gains, however, he realized he was also making dangerous enemies along the way. 1988, he predicted that he would not live to see the end of the year. And sadly, his prediction came true. That year, Mendez became involved in a dispute with a local rancher named Darley Alves Da Silva, who bought a rubber plantation to log for wood. As the situation heated up, events spiraled out of control. On December 22, 1988, just one week after his 44th birthday, Mendez was gunned down by Da Silva's son. Incredibly, Mendez was the 19th activist to be killed in Brazil that year. Although some of those cases were never solved, Mendez was too high profile for his case to be swept aside. After a brief investigation, Darley da Silva and his son Darcy were arrested and convicted of the murder. Each was sentenced to 19 years in prison. But even in death, Mendez could claim victories for his home and his people. After the extensive media coverage his assassination received, several U.S. senators flew down to Brazil to push for change. As a result, the Brazilian government passed laws to protect the rainforest and approved a plan to replant 2.5 million acres of woodland that had been destroyed. In addition, the Chico Mendes Extractive Reserve was created in his honor in the area where he lived. Chico Mendez was a brave and spirited activist for both human rights and the environment. He was the guiding force behind the movement to organize indigenous rubber tappers, and he helped raise awareness about the dangers of Amazon deforestation. Thanks in large part to his work, an ongoing effort continues to this day to protect the rainforests of the Amazon and the indigenous people who call it home. At first, I thought I was fighting to save rubber trees, said Mendez. Then, I thought I was fighting to save the Amazon rainforest. Now, I realize I am fighting for humanity.
2: Chico Mendes. Um a labor leader and an environmentalist. In his work, uh, the two are joined together. There's no contradiction. And um, it's time, right? It's time to uh, do something. Here's a song from... uh, the UFW. This
11: one
2: is for, this one is for Solina.
12: De colores, de colores se visten los campos en la primavera. Los campos en la primavera de colores, de colores son los pajaritos.
7: near
2: Ina Simone, Ina Simone there with uh, I Shall Be Released, and um, Lucinda Williams, Fruits of My Labor. Let me give you some advice. Lucinda Williams' uh, Fruit of My Labor. That was uh, Nina Simone with I Shall Be Released. Uh, Here we go with Lucinda. Lucinda.
13: On your eyelids, baby, sweet baby, chase your sin through the gloom, till I found these purple flowers, I will spin, I will soon, smelling you for hours, that Come to my <laughs> world and wilderness The way things have changed Cause I finally did the baby I got all the grind. Got my mercury and drove out west Pedaled to the mill and my luck to the test, baby Sweet baby I've been trying to enjoy All the fruits of my labor I've been crying for you boy But truth is my savior Baby sweet baby If it's all the same Take the glory any day Over the fame, baby Sweet baby I've been trying to enjoy All the fruits of my labor I've been crying for you, boy But truth is my savior Baby, sweet baby, if it's all the same Take the glory any day over the fame, baby Sweet baby
11: (laughs)
2: Beautiful song there by Lucinda Williams The Fruits of My Labor And before that we had Nina Simone Singing uh, Dylan's I Shall Be Released And before that De Colores That was dedicated to Solina, she asked me to play one for her. (laughs) So I did. Hope you heard it there, Jolie. I want to read something now by uh, Jack London. Jack London, of course, was um, a local guy, born and raised in San Francisco and in San Mateo County, Uh, mostly raised by uh, an African American woman Uh, went to live in the East Bay uh, became part of the illegal uh, oyster pirates who used to when there were oysters in the bay they would uh, steal them and sell them it was kind of a The authorities kind of looked the other way sometimes. Sometimes didn't. London uh, grew up and worked a variety of jobs, including farm labor, including this job we're gonna we're going to uh, reference right now. Um, you can still go down on um, I'm trying to think which street it would be Third Street, I suppose. The house where Jack London was born. Now, warehouse. London was a socialist. Uh, became famous when he wrote stories about the Yukon, the gold rush in the Yukon. Became one of the highest-paid writers in the world. A lot of books, famous, of course. Uh, people remember Call of the Wild. White Fang, but he wrote a lot of other novels, too. One called The Iron Heel, about a fascist takeover of the United States. And he wrote a novel called Martin Eden, which was um, probably one of his his most autobiographical novels. And in Martin Eden, he describes the work, a job that he and one other guy have, uh, washing and ironing shirts for the members, the rich members of the of the uh, men's club of a men's club. Later on, uh, London would found one of the founders of the Bohemian Club, which quickly quickly became a playground time for uh, very rich people like Henry Kissinger, etc. But this this is kind of a backbreaking the type of, of thing that, that workers would do. Um, and you would get a job like this and you would get a job like this and you would have to you know you you would have to work your whole life just about I mean and I don't mean all your years. I remember I mean your entire day. Uh. So this is this is how it goes. It was exhausting work, carried on hour after hour at top speed. Out of the broad verandas of the hotel, men and women in cool white sipped ice drinks and kept their circulation down. But in the laundry, that's the job that these two guys, Martin and this other guy, are doing. The air was sizzling. The huge stove roared red hot and white hot while the irons moving over the damp cloth set up clouds of steam. The heat of these ir- irons was different from that used by housewives. An iron that stood the ordinary test of a wet finger was too cold for Joe and Martin, and such test was useless. They went wholly by holding the irons close to their cheeks, gauging the heat by some secret mental process that Martin admired but could not understand. When the fresh irons proved too hot, they hooked them on iron rods and dipped them into cold water. This again required a precise and subtle judgment. A fraction of a second too long in the water and the fine and silken edge of the paper proper heat was lost. And Martin found time to marvel at the accuracy he developed, an automatic accuracy founded upon criteria that were machine-like and unerring. But there was little time to marvel. All Martin's consciousness was concentrated in that work, ceaselessly active, head and hand, an intelligent machine. All that constituted him a man was devoted to furnishing that intelligence. There was no room in his brain for the universe and its mighty problems. All the broad and spacious corridors of his mind were closed and hermetically sealed. The echoing chamber of his soul was a narrow room, a conning tower. Whence were directed his arm and shoulder muscles, his ten nimble fingers, and the swift moving iron along its steaming path steaming path in broad, sweeping strokes. Just so many strokes and not one more, just so far with each stroke and not a fraction of an inch further, rushing along interminable sleeves, sides, backs, and tails, and tossing the finished shirts without rumpling into the receiving frame. And even as his hurrying soul tossed, it was reaching for another shirt, This went on hour after hour, while outside all the world swooned under the overhead California sun, but there was no swooning in that superheated room. The cool guests on the verandas needed clean linen. The sweat poured from Martin. He drank enormous quantities of water, but so great was the heat of the day and of his exertions that the water sluiced through the inner seas of his flesh and out of all his pores. Always at sea, except at rare intervals, the work he performed had given him ample opportunity to commune with himself. The master of the ship had been Lord of Martin's time, but here the manager of the hotel was Lord of Martin's thoughts as well. He had no thoughts, save for the nerve-wracking, body-destroying toil. Outside of that, it was impossible to think. He did not know that he loved Ruth. She did not even exist, for his driven soul had no time to remember her. It was only when he crawled to bed at night or to breakfast in the morning that she asserted herself to him in fleeting memories. This is hell, ain't it? Joe remarked once. So this was a passage from a novel by Jack London called Martin Eden. And it brings us to the subject of alienation. Okay, and this is an article, I'll read the whole thing, it's not too long, by a guy named Chris Chris Wright on uh, popularresistance.org Capitalism, Socialism, and Existential Despair Decades ago, Edward Said remarked that contemporary life is characterized by a generalized condition of homelessness Decades earlier, Heidegger had written that homelessness is coming to be the destiny of the world Around the same time, fascists were invoking the themes of blood and soil, nation, race, community as intoxicating antidotes to the mass anonymity and depersonalization of modern life. 20 or 30 years later, the New Left, in its Port Huron statement, lamented the corruption and degradation of such values as love, freedom, creativity, and community. And as we just read, Martin Eden had no time for any of these things as he worked. The Port Huron statement said, loneliness and estrangement, isolation describe the vast distance between man and today, and men today. These dominant tendencies cannot be overcome by better personnel management, nor by improved gadgets but only when a love of man, that is, people, humanity, overcomes the idolatrous worship of things by man. Over a hundred years earlier, Karl Marx had already understood it was capitalism that was responsible for all this collective anguish. All fixed, fast, frozen relations are swept away, he wrote in the Communist Manifesto. All new formed ones became antiquate, become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned. Home, community, the family, one's very relation to oneself, all are mediated by money commodity function, reification, exploitation of one form or another. And now here we are in 2019, when the alienation and atomization have reached such a state that it seems as if the world is in danger of ending. The phenomenology, the structure of feeling, of living in this society is that everything is transient and up in the air, Human survival is in question. A hectored, bureaucratized anonymity chases us from morning till night. Nothing really matters. No one gets their just desserts. Young people are refraining from having children. There is certainly no collective sense of belonging that's long gone. We are letrangers, passively consuming distractions as we wait for the other shoe to drop. The truth is that only socialism or an economically democratic society in which there is no capitalist class could possibly usher in a world in which the existentialist howl of Camus and Sartre and uh, Allen Ginsberg and so many others didn't have universal resonance. Mass loneliness and the gnawing sense of meaninglessness are not timeless conditions. They're predictable expressions of a commoditized, privatized, bureaucratized civilization. Do away with the agent of enforced commoditization, privatization, hyperbureaucratization for the sake of social control, the capitalist class that is. And you'll do aware with the despair that arises from these things it's true that the current suicide epidemic and the mental illness epidemic around the world have more specific causes than simply capitalization capitalism they have to do with high unemployment deindustrialization underfunded hospitals and community outreach programs, job-related stress, social isolation, etc. In other words they have to do with a particularly vicious and virulent forms that capitalism takes on in the neoliberal period. But long before this period widespread disaffection and mental illness characterized capitalist society. Now In the light of global warming and ecological destruction, it's possible that humanity won't last much longer anyway, in which case capitalism will never be overcome and our collective existential anguish is perfectly appropriate. But nothing is certain at this point except that we have a moral imperative to do all we can to fight for socialism. By any means necessary is what people demand, justice demands. And it offers the only hope that we, even we privileged people, not to mention the less privileged supermajority, can know what it is to truly have a home. Hear, hear. All right, well, we spoke about earlier spoke about Golden Land's working hands, Fred Glass's monumental history of the California labor movement. And we're going to play part one today. Step by Step, it's called.
13: the longest march. Can be one, can be one. Many stones to form an arch, singly none, singly none. And by union, what we will can be accomplished if drops of water.
5: These are union members in 1949 going to a meeting. They will vote to end a strike and accept an offer from employers, making them the highest paid warehouse workers in the country. They have a right to hold this meeting. They have a right to have been on strike. But workers had to fight to get those rights. And they had to fight to keep them. Working people are often proud of the work they do. They should be. They built this state and this country with their hands and sweat. And occasionally with their blood. Steel workers and their families near Chicago, Memorial Day, 1937, wanted a unity. 10 families were given a new reason to remember Memorial Day. This was not an unusual occurrence in the 1930s. In California, for instance, longshoremen Howard Sperry and Nick Bordeaux, a cook, lost their lives to bullets in the back, sparking the 1934 San Francisco general strike. Of course, that was a long time ago. No employer today abuses workers the way they used to be treated.
9: Near Los Angeles, a raid has freed garment workers so desperate, so trapped, that perhaps only one word describes what they endured, slavery.
3: With sewing machines in the garage, the living room, and the dining room, the undocumented workers said they were forced to work 120 hours a week for less than $2 an hour. The Immigration and Naturalization Service knew about the alleged operation more than three years ago but took no
5: enforcement action. And when workers today exercise their legal right to protest, we would imagine they are treated with proper respect. Who are these people? And what motivated them to choose to stand up time and again for their rights? Some have been famous. But for most, we have no statues, no official memory, perhaps a glimpse of blurry faces without names. These are the ones we speak of when we say, they sacrificed and sometimes gave their lives back in the day so that we might have rights in our workplaces and communities. If we are interested in protecting the inheritance they left us, it would help to know who they were, to look at California history from the perspective of its working people and their labor movement from then to now.
9: Not dissing, but who built the missions of our nation The gold rush washed ashore millions of dreams and schemes Prospectors bought and sold the gold that just rolled from streams But was it all white people like they always say Or was it people of color working back in the day They were cooking and washing and building and being guys And making clothing and planting and hunting and tanning hides Got lucky and got paid The rest worked themselves to death Back then there was no minimum wage The age of the railroads enhanced mass transportation But did rich men make the trains of our nation? Psych! It was the working people who lived the tracks The Chinese, the Latinos, the whites, the blacks Rowdy cowboys and horses But there's more to this story Pete the wild, wild west Let's double check history and fun, write a history rhyme, and then add a few pages, about hiding at the old saloon working for wages, about the blacksmiths and tailors, the farmers who built the state, carpenters, teachers, and bakers got to congratulate, and as we celebrate, see what it took to create, this greatest state, we call the Golden State, yo gee, can't you see it's no mystery, California workers made history, yo gee, can't you see it's no mystery, California workers made
2: That was the uh, introduction to uh, Golden Lands Working Hands, a history of the California labor movement by uh, Fred Glass. Glass is uh, formerly communications director of the California Federation of Teachers. Let's look and see what's going on now on the labor beat. Labor and Love Radio. And if you look on Labor and Love Radio, you'll find these and other stories. Support striking AT&T workers, the Communications Workers of America. And this is good news. The AT&T Southeast strike has ended. CWA members' spirit and solidarity and your support showed the company that we would not stop until they bargained in good faith okay so they they've gotten to the table so we'll see how that comes out see if they gain anything here's a a young woman he ran has sentenced journalist and activist Marzier Amiri to 10.5 years in prison and 148 lashes. Charging her with collusion against national security, propaganda against the state, and disturbing public order. Amiri was arrested along with other labor activists as they protested in Tehran, on May 1st, International Workers' Day. The Committee to Protect Journalists condemned the harsh sentence and said Iranian authorities are escalating their threats against journalists who report on economic issues and the country's ongoing crisis. Amiri's reporting on the economic hardships of Iranian citizens is not a criminal act nor does it warrant this vindictive and violent response. She should be released immediately. Do You ever wonder what the problem with Congress is? In Congress, 51% of the people are millionaires. In the regular population, 5% of the people are millionaires. In Congress, 77% of the people are white men. White men in America and the population at large, 31%. Women in Congress, 20% of our Congress people, senators and representatives, are women. In America, 51% of the people are women. And the people in Congress, two-thirds, 67%, are 55 years old or older. In America, 28% are 55 years old or older. So who are they representing? They're representing white men, huh? White men over 55, inordinately, inordinately. Here's something by a woman named Barbara Ehrenreich. Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a book called Nickel and Dime, which was turned into a play. In which she, you know, as sort of a privileged uh, white woman, uh, leftist journalist, decided to see for herself what it would be like to live on minimum wage jobs. And if you want a real dose of what it's really like, like that Martin Eden piece... Just get nickel and dime. It's not that long. It's a good and easy read, but it's very, very um, problematic. It raises uh, all kinds of questions. And this is what she said in, in that book, one thing. Shame at our own dependence on the underpaid labor of others. When someone works for less pay than she can live on, when she goes hungry so that you can eat more cheaply and conveniently, then she has made a great sacrifice for you. The working poor are the major philanthropists of our society. Hear, hear. What trickle down? Worker pay is up 12% since 1978. How much do you think CEO pay is up? 940%. 940%. 80, 78 times what workers' salaries have raised. Dolores Huerta, among eight arrested at a protest demanding raise for health care workers the comment of Labor and Love Radio, Dolores Te Queremos. Demanding better pay for 500 healthcare workers who haven't had a raise in only a decade. In Fresno, California, Huerta was 89 years old, joined members of the service, employees, international union, as they chanted and rang cowbells Outside the doors of a closed session of the Fresno County Board of Supervisors. Okay, one more thing now before we go. I wanted to have Francesca Ramsey talk about ID how voter ID laws explain structural structural racism. People are inclined to say, well, what's wrong with that? Making people identify themselves.
6: Let's see. Right? In case you haven't noticed, the presidential election is almost here. Soon, everybody can go to the polls and cast their ballots to decide the fate of America. Well, almost everybody. Since 2008, 10 states have successfully implemented strict voter ID laws that are meant to prevent voter fraud, but in reality, make it harder for a lot of people to vote. Three of them make you show either a photo ID, like a driver's license, or non-photo ID, like a bill with your name on it, before you can vote at the polls. The other seven will only let you vote if you have a photo ID. So depending on where you live, what you need to do to vote in our national election can be totally different. America! So why have these laws popped up recently? Well, in theory, they prevent voters from impersonating someone else. That way we can all feel confident in the accuracy of the election process without worrying that some kid is sneaking into the polls wearing mustache glasses. Yo, 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 fake IDs! Vote twice! But here's the thing. The kind of fraud voter ID laws claim to prevent practically never happens. In fact, a report concluded that voter impersonation is rarer than being struck by lightning. Even FoxNews.com reported that this kind of voter fraud rarely happens. Wait, did I just agree with Fox News? Oh my god! So why even bother having voter ID laws at all? Mmm, good old-fashioned voter suppression with a dash of racism and classism for good measure. Requiring voters to have ID seems like a harmless precaution until you realize the majority of people lacking ID are either elderly, poor, and aren't white. And frequently, they're all three. Statistically, African-American and Latinx voters are much less likely than white voters to have the qualifying IDs required by states with voter ID laws. They're also disproportionately likely to be low income. Even when a state offers free photo ID, these residents may not be able to afford the underlying documents, transportation, or time required to get one. Many Republicans pushing for voter ID claim the laws have nothing to do with race or class. But in 2013, North Carolina County Precinct GOP Chair Don Yelton told The Daily Show that if the state's new voter ID rule hurts a bunch of lazy blacks who just want the government to give them everything, so be it. Tell us how you really feel, Don. And speaking of North Carolina, they passed a law that imposed strict photo ID requirements on voters, in addition to ending voter registration outreach programs that historically increased black voter turnout. Thankfully, this past July, a federal appeals court actually struck down North Carolina's voter ID laws claiming they targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision. See, voter ID laws are a classic example of structural racism, which is what makes racism different from prejudice. Prejudice is the individual dislike of a class of people based on a superficial characteristic or stereotype. Racism is racial prejudice plus structural oppression and power that negatively impacts a group. Structural racism often exists in the form of policies or laws that may or may not seem overtly racist, but ultimately cause negative consequences for people of color. Pop quiz. What's the best way to make sure racist laws stay on the books and new rules aren't put into place? Ooh, I know. Make it really difficult for people of color to vote. And that has a long history in America. After the Civil War, the 15th Amendment was ratified, making it illegal to deny a male citizen the right to vote based on race. But that didn't stop election officials from falsely telling black voters they'd gotten the date wrong or that they were in the wrong polling place. Other voters were told they had to pass a literacy test first. Some were even forced to recite the entire Constitution, Really? Who can do that without Google? Fast forward to the civil rights movement in the 1960s. After the violent attack by state troopers on peaceful activists protesting in Selma, Alabama, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, which explicitly made voter discrimination illegal. Because of the act, turnout of black voters increased tremendously. Of course, not everyone was happy about this. Some states took issue with section five of the Voting Rights Act, which required states with a history of voter discrimination to seek federal approval before making changes to voter laws, This was basically the federal government's way of looking at states who've been shady towards voters in the past and letting them know we see you. But in 2013 in the case of Shelby County versus Holder lawmakers argued enough time had passed that it was no longer fair to make these states undergo the extra approval because you know racism is over. The Supreme Court agreed. So after Shelby versus Holder, states like Alabama were free to change election laws without approval from the Justice Department. And many of them took advantage of this to create the voter ID laws we see today. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who dissented from the decision, said, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. And when it comes to racism, it's still raining a lot. So why does all this matter? Well, beyond ensuring every American has the right to vote, the key to ending structural racism is by replacing it with a better structure. It isn't just about people changing their racist behaviors, although that's certainly part of it. It's also about reassessing the way those behaviors get written into the very laws on which our country stands. And if you're not sure what you need to do to vote in your state, our friends John and Hank Green put together a great YouTube channel called How to Vote in Every State. You should also check out MTV's electthis.com to learn more about the election. We'll put links to both sites in the description box so you can make sure your voice is heard this November. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Decoded.
2: Okay, that was Francesca Ramsey for us to get out of here now and make way for Scotto and flat black plastic and I want to go out with something from Carlos Santana let's see Samba Pati This is the B signing off. Remember, Mutiny, it's all happening down here at Mutiny Radio. We got art. We got radio. We got video. We got comedy. A community arts center, Mutiny Radio, corner of 21st Street in Florida, 2781 21st is the address. Come on down and find your voice at mutiny. And this is the labor and love show signing off. The comment of labor and love is if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Labor and love says, if you don't have a seat at the table, The negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And Labor and Love Radio cautions you never but never let anyone into your house who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Hello to everybody out there. Sylvia Salina, Yamanin Vita. Be there everybody, you know who you are. Have a good week and good work. This is the B signing off.
3: For the mere price
7: of a spot of tea and crumpets. Comedians who remain after their initial sets are invited to perform feats of
2: improvisation
5: and engineering.
14: They have a fun time at Tastics deep in the mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off. for It's <laughs> in duty, this. And if you can't make it to Muni Radio, don't worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge for the kayaks. <laughs>
12: Like the last
5: stick. So, so, if you're in your car and you're listening to one radio station, you what need you're radio stations? You're, you're, you're turning all, all the others. They are, they are 3D on in all, in all frequencies and you keep, keep them so, so just listen to, to one specific speaker. Saturday, Saturday, two. and the tube? Really, the sound quality quality good, and you understand, understand thing that's playing. However, however, if your radio video is not fine too, too, you might might two or two or three or more stage stations at the same time. time. <laughs>
0: tacos they get them and form the specials very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun what are those crunchy potheads going to Welcome, Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco.